You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello again, everyone. We are working our way through how the inclusive approach deals with hell passages and with judgment passages which might not mention hell, but which do leave us with a sense that all will not be saved. And today we will look at one of the most important of those passages in this debate, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, known as the parable of the sheep and the goats. In this parable, Jesus describes a judgment scene in which all of the nations are gathered before the Son of Man, and then the people are separated into the righteous and the unrighteous, like a shepherd separates the sheep, which go on the right, and the goats, which go on the left. The sheep get to immediately take part in God's kingdom because, as they are told, they helped the Son of Man by feeding him when he was hungry, and giving him something to drink when he was thirsty, and inviting him in when he was a stranger, and clothing him when he needed clothing and looking after him when he was sick, and visiting him when he was in prison. But the sheep, who've been counted among the righteous, are confused about this, and they wonder, when did they ever do any of these things? And the Son of Man tells them that whenever they fed, or gave a drink, or invited in, or clothed, or looked after, or visited in prison any of the least of his brothers and sisters, it was like they had done all of those things for him. Then the Son of Man turns to the goats on his left and tells them to go away into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, because they didn't do any of those nice things for him. And they say, But when did we ever see you in need and not help you? And the Son of Man tells them that whenever they had not fed, or given a drink, or invited in, or clothed, or looked after, or visited in prison any of the least of his brothers and sisters, It was like they had not done any of those things for him. And then in the last verse of the parable, verse 46, the fate of the goats and the sheep is described this way. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And it's this last verse of the parable, which is the single most important passage used to support belief in an eternal hell where God forever punishes the guilty. And that's because the parallelism seems so clear. We have two eternal destinies. The unrighteous go into eternal punishment, and the righteous go into eternal life. It's seemingly either eternal punishment or eternal life. One of the two, and both the punishment and the life, last forever. So, then, how does the inclusive Christian universalist approach handle this one? Well, we start by looking at the word eternal in this passage. The word behind the word eternal here is the Greek word aeonian, which is an adjective based on the Greek noun aeon. And how one translates aeonian depends on how one translates aeon, because one affects the other. Many times in the New Testament, the word aeon simply refers to an age or a period of time in the past or present or the future. There are ages which have passed, and there are ages which are yet to come. You can see a good example of this idea of the ages yet to come in Ephesians 2.7 when Paul tells us about the ages yet to come in which God will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ. 
Notice that Paul says that it will take more than a single age, but multiple ages, in order for God to show us all of this. I kind of like the idea that it will take ages and ages, literally aeons and aeons, for God to show us the immeasurable riches of God's grace in Christ. And then about the adjective aeonian, based on the word aeon, it's important to know how in Greek, when thinking of time, how long an aeon lasts depends on what you're talking about. Because the aeon of a tree is different from the aeon of a flower, is different from the aeon of God. The aeon of something is just a way of saying how long it lasts. And so using the adjective aeonian to describe both the life of God and the punishment of God is really only saying that God's life and God's punishment both endure or last as long as they endure. Even another aspect of the adjective of aeonian which demonstrates its versatility is found in the way Jesus defines aeonian life in John 17.3 as knowing the Father and knowing the Son. And so eternal life, or aeonian life, is the kind of life which finds its essence in God, and which can only said to be properly and fully of God. So when I read Matthew 25:46 with this in mind, what I'm seeing is that what's happening is that the sheep are going into God's enduring life, and the goats are going into God's enduring punishment. And both the life of God and the punishment of God each have their own unique quality, and they both last as long as they last. So, saying that both the life and the punishment of God are aeonian doesn't mean either that they have to both last exactly the same amount of time or that they both have the same quality even though they are both expressions of God's love. Another way of putting all of this is that the Aeonian punishment of God can come to an end, while the Aeonian life of God can go on without an end. And all of these distinctions were not lost on the Greek-speaking and reading early Christians. A good example of this is given by David Bentley Hart in his article on the Greek word Aeonios in his postscript to his translation of the New Testament. Hart describes the situation this way. Late in the 4th century, Basil the Great, Bishop of Caesarea, reported that the vast majority of his fellow Christians, at least in the Greek-speaking East with which he was familiar, assumed that hell is not an eternal condition and that the aeonios punishment of the age to come would end when the soul had been purified of its sins and thus prepared for union with God. So that's a pretty good look into the various aspects of aeon and aeonian. And now the next thing to look at is the word normally translated punishment in this verse, and that's the Greek word kolossin, which comes from the Greek root word kolossus. Now the Greek word kolossus has its background in the world of plants, the world of horticulture. And in that world, kolossus is all about trimming back a tree or a plant to make it grow better or to cut off diseased parts. So to subject a plant to colossus is just to trim away the stuff that doesn't need to be there. And the same thing would apply for a person. To subject a person to colossus is to put them in some situation that is remedial and reformative, some situation that is designed to separate them from the evil that's keeping them from thriving and growing the way that they should. The famous New Testament scholar William Barclay had this to say about the background of colossus. The Greek word for punishment is colossus, 
which was not originally an ethical word at all. It originally meant the pruning of trees to make them grow better. I think it is true to say that in all Greek secular literature, Colossus is never used of anything but remedial punishment. So the punishment the goats are sent into is the punishment of Colossus, which is reformative and not retributive. And as it turns out, the Greeks had a special word for retributive justice, timoria. To simplify this, if you had offended me and I was subjecting you to timoria, I would punish you until I felt better, until I felt justified, until I had my honor restored by the punishment you had received. When punishment is timoria, it's all about restoring and satisfying the honor of the one who's been offended. Think back into the old times when people used to duel or fight each other because their honor had been tarnished. That's timoria. It's about retribution and restoring honor. And then there's Colossus, which is not about retribution, but about healing and restoration. And that's the verb we have here in verse 26. David Bentley Hart, in his book, That All Shall Be Saved, makes note of this Greek word Colossus writing. You might even find some support for the purgatorial view of Gehenna from the Greek of Matthew 25:46, the supposedly conclusive verse on the side of the infernalist orthodoxy, where the word used for the punishment of the last day is Colossus, which most properly refers to remedial chastisement rather than timoria, which most properly refers to retributive justice. By the late antique period, admittedly, Colossus might have become a word for any sort of legal penalty, but the evidence is mixed. But the word's special connotation of corrective rather than retributive punishment was still appreciated and observed by educated writers for centuries after the time of Christ. So, our way of looking at this verse is building. When we started, we read it as it is most often translated into English, that the unrighteous, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, to eternal life. Now, if we're taking all of these nuances into account, we can read the verse as, Then the goats will go away into God's enduring correction, and the sheep into God's enduring life. And there's still more to consider, because there's an interesting detail about the goats in this passage that's worth noting. Because the goats in this parable are not adult goats, but kid goats, eraphos in the Greek. The same kid goat appears in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember in the parable when the older brother complains that his father had splurged and given the fatted calf for the younger brother while never even giving him a young goat, eraphon in the Greek, so that he could celebrate with his friends? So the goat in the judgment scene is the same kind of goat as in the parable of the prodigal son, a young goat an immature goat, we might say. About this contrast, Alex Smith at his website reforminghell.com comments, The Greek word eraphos or eraphon, which gets translated in the parable as goats, is translated as young goat in the parable of the prodigal son. This is the only other occurrence in the New Testament, but as there are about 100 occurrences in other ancient texts, most Greek dictionaries say the word means young goats or kids. Because of this, I think Jesus is deliberately contrasting mature sheep with kids who need a lot of maturing. And all of this can even add more nuance to our translation of Matthew 25:46 and how we understand the Aeonian Colossan into which the kid goats are said to go. This verse could be read to mean that the immature goats, 
who go into the judgment will have to endure a time or an age or ages of God's corrective presence for the purpose of bringing them ultimately back to themselves and to God. And so we can think of the Aeonian Colossian in Matthew 25:46 as a sufficient period of time in which God may apply to the immature the determined corrective punishment which is necessary for their ultimate healing and restoration. Okay, now just one more thing to consider about the parable of the sheep and the goats, and then we'll be done. And it's this. The whole parable of the sheep and the young goats may not be directed at individual people, but rather at large groups of people, as in nations of people. I say this because of the way the parable begins with the great crowd gathered before the Son of Man. In the original Greek, it says that all of the ethnos, ethnos meaning nations, are being gathered together, and then that they, apparently referring to the ethnos, will be separated. And then as the parable develops, we find out that the ethnos, the nations, are being judged by how they treated Jesus' brothers and sisters. Now, what's interesting about this is that in the coming judgment scene, it appears that it's the ethnos, or the nations, who will be being separated and judged by how they had treated a specific group of people, the brothers and sisters of the king. And so, when the Son of Man, who is also referred to as a king in the parable, is speaking of his brothers and sisters, of whom is he speaking? Well, a good case can be made that the brothers and sisters being talked about here is a reference to Jesus' followers, because Jesus thinks of his followers in very endearing, even familial ways. For instance, Luke in his gospel records a time when Jesus was teaching his disciples about the importance of not worrying about the basics of life and instead to seek first God's kingdom. And then he says to them in Luke 12:32, "Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom." Jesus' followers are his little flock. And then there is this time in the 12th chapter of Matthew where Jesus was speaking to a large crowd. And someone informs him that his mother and brothers were here. Here's how in verses 46 to 47 of Matthew chapter 12, it reads, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And Jesus replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So it's apparent that Jesus thought of his disciples as his little flock, his family, his brothers and sisters and mother, and he was very concerned about them. And in Luke chapter 21, we can see how he was concerned about their future because he cautioned them that in the future, when they saw armies surrounding Jerusalem, that they should head for the hills, or if they were in the country to stay there, Here's how this passage reads in Luke 21, 20 through 22. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. And so now back to the parable of the sheep and the goats. I think it's reasonable to think that part of what's going on here is Jesus warning the nations or the ethnos that the way they treat his disciples, his brothers and sisters and mother, his little flock, that the way they treat them is the way they are treating him, and that to mistreat them will result in God's judgment.
So there's a lot going on in the parable of the sheep and the goats, or maybe we should say the parable of the sheep and the young goats. When the young goats end up going into eternal punishment, I know that in the Greek they have gone into Aeonian Colossan. And I understand that the Aeonian Colossan is not about retribution, or it would have been called the Aeonian Timoria, because Timoria is the Greek word for retributive punishment. But instead, the young goats go into Aeonian Colossan, and Colossan is the Greek word for restorative punishment. And so I see that the Aeonian Colossan, described in Matthew 25:46, is a period of God's time in the coming ages in which the immature, the not yet ready, will experience God's restorative, purifying correction until they are ready. And then in the background of all of this is that this might also be a warning from Jesus to the nations of that time, that the way that they treated his little group, his little flock of brothers and sisters, was the way they were treating him. And so all of this fits into how I have come to see the parable of the sheep and the goats in the 25th chapter of Matthew, and how this fits into a biblical view of a God who includes all and who intends to ultimately bring all nations and peoples back home to God, and, when necessary, how this coming universal restoration will entail for some an Aeonian Colossan, a process of purification from evil, which will take place in the age to come or in the ages yet to come. And so I encourage you to continue to take all of these things into consideration when you look into the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. And I hope that in so doing, you will continue to join with me in believing in a grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.